0: Yesterday marked the first reading of the Counterterrorism terrorism Act's amendment bill in New Zealand Parliament. The bill, introduced by Minister of Justice Kitty Allen, specifically amends two bills, the Terrorism Suppression Act 2002 and the Terrorism Suppression Controlled Act 2019. This is the latest effort at strengthening Aotearoa New Zealand's ability to, to respond to terrorism in response to the Christchurch Mosque terror, terror attacks in March 2019. Speaking as to today about the bill is uh, Professor Richard Jackson of the National Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies. Kia Professor.
1: Kia ora. What would the amendment bill actually do? So there's um, – well, first of all, we should say that this is contextualised um, in terms of uh, the uh, counterterrorism legislation bill that came in late last year. So that bill late last year and this bill this year are both um, part of a broader legislative effort to try and strengthen um, New Zealand's counter-terrorism laws, uh, mostly justified in response to the um, Royal Commission. So last year's bill expanded the definition of terrorism, uh, gave um, the security services wider leeway to conduct warrantless um, surveillance, um, and, uh, yeah, uh, criminalised... What we call the intent to commit a terrorist act, so acts preparatory to terrorism became became criminalized so then this latest um, bill uh focuses on on two key issues: one is the designation of of terrorists because this is a this is a an international kind of regime where if you designate a group or an individual as a terrorist um that kind of sticks to them, and then it, you can do all sorts of things to them. You can restrict them in so many different ways. Uh, other people are not allowed to help them because then that's providing material support for terrorists and so on and so forth. Um, and so it, it's designed to strengthen that designation part of the, of the process. And then the c- Control Orders Bill. Uh, contr- and Control Orders, again, I guess... They're kind of similar to designation, but they're about uh, controlling people's, um, yeah, lives, basically, their ability to where they live and and their ability to work and move and and restricting their, yeah, their ability to do stuff, right? Um, And so the control orders and the... um, and the designation are both being strengthened. Now, it's a little bit technical, uh, and it's it's because there are some uh, anomalies, such as, you know, if you're in prison, you can claim, I'm not involved in terrorism anymore, therefore I want to challenge my designation as terrorist. This new bill says no, even if you're in prison, you might be Connecting with people and organising and planning, so we're going to take away that ability for you to challenge your designation. There's a few sort of things like that. So I'm going to build
0: on the idea that control for a second there, because obviously, in, in in listeners will be able to identify in what you're saying that there is a balance between the need for national security and the, and the safety of communities versus the kind of idea of of civil liberties. So what kind of restrictions do we have, and and how does how does this work in a way that you know obviously. We, we, we as you know, regular citizens you know, maintain our civil liberties but there is how does that balance work with the need for, as you say, stuff like warrantless, warrantless searches and, and identifying targets in a way that obviously doesn't tip them off and doesn't actually weaken the, you know, the safety and security of those communities. How do, we, how do we balance that?
1: Well look, this is the extraordinary thing from my perspective which is that we've had more than 20 years of the war on terror and we've had also previous Terrorist um, sort of campaigns, such as in Northern Ireland, and all these measures that we're discussing today have been used for decades in other countries. Now, what's extraordinary about this is that there's tons of research which shows not only do these measures don't actually work, there's 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 no evidence that they actually reduce terrorism or prevent acts of terrorism. No government can come out and say, look. Here's a body of evidence, you know, here's 25 attacks that because we had control orders and because we had terrorist designation lists and so on were prevented. They can't do it. There there, there just isn't the evidence there. Um, And then the other side of it is we have a lot of evidence and there are some major studies which look cross-country, cross-jurisdiction, which show that these measures have all had a negative impact on human rights. They've actually reduced people's human rights. So on the one hand, they haven't made us any safer. And on the other hand, they've actually taken away our civil liberties. So why do governments keep doing them? I mean, I think that's the key question. None of this is evidence-based. And, you know, um, when they were introducing this latest bill... Uh, in the in the press release, they said these proposed changes are in line with the government's commitment to implementing the recommendations of the Royal Commission. However, I've read the Royal Commission, and one of its key recommendations is that government go, the government makes policy on the basis of evidence, that it's evidence based policy. Uh, Where's the evidence that this actually is going to work? I, I just don't, I can't see it myself. I've been I've been studying the war on terror since it started. Uh, you know, I watched the planes crash over in the student union right here, uh, live on that day, and then I started studying it um, ever since. And yeah, it's kind of extraordinary to me that the government keeps introducing more and more legislation, um, which... Keep expanding the powers that the government has, and uh, and reduces the civil liberties of particularly people who um, might be considered critics of the government or protesters, activists, and so on. Um, and yet, and yet, no one really raises um, you know too big an outcry. I mean, in part, it's that kind of public um, desire for the government to do something. Well, you know, whenever there's crime or terrorism, people are like, "What? Are, what's the government doing about this? And the easiest thing to do is to pass some legislation. The hardest thing to do is actually to deal with the roots of it, to try and get to the reasons why people want to commit terrorist acts. So
0: obviously we're dealing with means that have not been as tested by research. They haven't been tested by research in a, in a way that can actually be translated to any effectiveness. What what research what 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 does research propose out there that we that that the evidence proves works what are the methods that we should be looking at as as ways of preventing terrorism and 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 preventing these acts and and what and it obviously spoke about why we're not doing it but what 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 should we be doing
1: yeah so look this is the the really tricky question uh, in the field of terrorism studies uh, you know this is its own field and we do a lot of research on On things like this. Um, I I mean, I guess to sum sum it up, what I would say is that there's kind of two broad approaches here. One is the approach that most governments have taken since 9-11, and that is a hard security approach. It it kind of assumes that terrorists are evil, bad people. You can't prevent them from emerging. They're just going to pop up. uh, And really, the only way to stop them is through hard Securitized approaches, and that includes expanding the number of laws, locking them up for longer, harsh prison sentences, but as also you know, shoot-to-kill policies, so that if they're wandering around and they look like they pose a threat, you can kill them, uh, and 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 then war and uh, you know torture and extraordinary rendition and all the things that we've seen for 20 years. The other much harder thing to do is to look at the root causes, what we call the root causes. Um, Why is it that political conflicts sometimes lead to violence? What makes individuals want to join radical groups that are committed to violence? Uh, And here you need to take an approach that's kind of similar to um, the approach that you take when you 're trying to to deal with the long term causes of crime you know which we know are rooted in in social deprivation uh, in um, lack of you know jobs and alternatives um, dysfunctional communities um, yeah yeah all those sorts of things which which lead to higher crime levels and to um, yeah other social ills that we experience are, are, are very similar to the to the things that lead to people getting involved in 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 violence um, and we know that in terms of um, things like what we would call de radicalization programs that's where you try and help people move out of groups and environments where they're sort of getting involved in in violence um, involves working with people to help give them a sense of purpose, to help give them a sense of community, to help connect them back into society. And and, and what they found is that those kinds of approaches, which are very intensive and costly and long-term, work much better than putting people in prison at the slightest pretext or giving them control orders or treating them as criminals um, for, for the thoughts that are in their heads. Uh, because what those things do is they actually increase people's sense of isolation. They, they, they cut off their connections, uh, which then makes them even more vulnerable to radicalization. So, you know, people who feel put upon by the state will go online and find a community that will tell them, well, that's because the government hates you and the only way to stop this is if we can bring down the government or it's because the government prefers other people to you um, and, and gives them a sense of community, a sense of purpose uh, and a reason to go out there and get violent. And, and so we've got to take this long-term approach with a much more um, you know, social focus that looks at the deeper roots of why people become alienated and and why people are um, disconnected from society and lack purpose and and so on in order to try and deal with this. Uh, One last
0: question. As we expand the scope of national security in New Zealand, uh, it follows that there will be a need to educate more people on the subject. What does counter-terrorism education look like in Aotearoa New Zealand
1: and how is this likely to change in the coming years? Well, um, I mean, I would say, first of all, that um, there's very little education. I mean, you know, this is a a complaint that academics have, uh, not just in the national security area, but more broadly, that a lot of the research that we do doesn't actually get well transmitted to the the policy process. I kind of think that the pandemic has has provided a, a kind of an opening, a cognitive opening if you might if you want to call it that. Um, the government made a really big deal of saying we 're following the, the advice of science, scientists we 're following the evidence, so we 're making policies around public health based on the evidence. Um, I think we ought, we ought to emphasize that and say, well, surely you should do the same when it comes to national security, when it comes to counterterrorism, counter-radicalization, you know, crime policy and so on and so forth. Uh, talk to the experts, listen to, to the research, uh, see what they have to say. I mean, one of the things that the government has done is set up a, a new national center for, um, for counter-radicalization. Uh, countering violent extremism, Um, and there's a possibility that through that process there might be a way of translating um, more of the research that's being done in this area to the the relevant government departments, also to politicians to help them um, make their uh, decisions. But the other responsibility is for academics like myself to um, publicise our work to write about it in the media, to talk about it, so that hopefully there's not just public education about what we know about counterterrorism, but also that um, it gets picked up by policymakers and so on. But, yeah, really, I I think in New Zealand we need a much better um, process whereby academics can actually talk to the the policymakers and share what they found so that that the government can make uh, more evidence-based um, decisions because I think, you know, particularly this piece of legislation and the previous one last year, which I also wrote in the media about, neither of which, to me, seem to be based on the evidence, and there's no evidence that they're really going to work. And there's a real risk, I think, that they will, they will continue to um, reduce the scope of human rights and civil liberties, but without any net gain in security.
0: There was a Radio 191 event podcast! You can find more of them at i forward slash podcasts!